This episode of Drive-By Cinema opens without any music, straight in to something that's a little bit like the rest of the podcast, but not totally connected to it. It's a cold open, Paul. It's what James Bond movies have been doing since for time immemorial. They start off immediately into something which sets the scene or creates the mood, but it's not directly related to the plot. But then, don't we often have a cliffhanger at this point in some Bond movies? I'm not sure you could call it a cliffhanger. Hey, look, I'm wearing green. I'm wearing green like the green man of the the, the movie last week. Look, and it's even down to the shorts. They're also green. I'm glad you put some clothes on. Richard was in a state of undress early. He just finished his OnlyFans. I am wearing shorts. It's October, but I'm wearing shorts. He was wearing even less just before. This is my co-host, Paul. And that's my co-host, Richard. Welcome, everybody, to another... Wonderful episode of Drive-By Cinema, Series 2, Episode Number 10. Cue the music. Here we go. Drive-By Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. (laughs) So, yeah, Paul, there's our cold open. James Bond style. But do we have any corrections from previous movies... I know. In particular, the Green, the Green Knight, or any previous movies. Paul, there's no statute of limitations on corrections. The truth does not have a sell-by date. How long does long life milk last? Does it last forever? Uh, long last milk does not last forever. No, why? I think it might do, Paul. What, when it does it might end? Do. Typically, the sell-by dates at three years or five years. Five years? That's effectively forever, isn't it? It is. No one keeps milk for five years. You might say that about tinned, tinned, uh, tinned comestibles. Tinned However, goods, they really do last forever. No. Oh. There's a whole YouTube universe exploring the eating of. Yeah. The opening and eating of. Yeah. 18, 90, 100 year old tins. And are they dead or alive or do they have botulism? They're, 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 well, they're a microbial fascination, let's put it that way. And people then go to maybe take a bite, a little, a nibble of them. Right. Afterwards. So very brave too. But, so they test them for microbes and then they eat them. Often they test them after they've eaten them, you know. Is that, is that sensible? Is that the way no, around you should do very dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous. Um, so they you- also test them for heavy metals. Because there might be some sort of metal leakage during the... Umpteen or umpty years that they've been uh, sat on the shelf. Tin cans are not made of tin. Uh-uh. They are made of... Steel, usually. They're made of steel, uh, typically. But they're and lined, aren't they? They have a lining on the inside. I don't know what it is on the inside. I think it's plastic or something. It so, is plastic these days, but yes, previously yeah. it wasn't plastic. No, it was probably... Oh, I spilt my tea on my... I spilt my tea, Paul. We can edit the he, tea. He says out. he says that he's not gossiping, by the way. When he says he spills his tea, that's like <laughs> a phrase he uses in his OnlyFans. Oh, I spilt my tea. I'm gonna have to rummage down there and pat myself dry. You see, he's well versed in how to how to entertain his subscribers. So do go over to Richard's OnlyFans and by all means do click and subscribe. Now that is a fetish, a kink I do not subscribe to. That whole messing with oh, food. Playing. Oh. Now, you know, I think they call it splosh or something, don't they? 
And they get girls really? to sit on cakes and stuff like that, or mess with food, I've food never, fights. Never heard of that. But uh, it's not. I don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah, but what about I, OnlyFans now, which is just oboe playing and, and what else is on it? What is it? What is what is left on OnlyFans now? It's now it's clean. I don't know. I don't think they've have they actually enacted that that uh, cleansing. Oh, they've they just done? said they're going to do it and they're going to do nothing about it. I don't know. It was to appease their investors, wasn't it? I think. So you're not into food being squashed. What about that big northern guy who goes around, puts his table outside restaurants in the north of England and just eats huge amounts of food? Oh, God. Do you a fan of him? No, he just looks like a... I don't know his name, Barry. A big bill on the NHS waiting to happen. Well, that's it. He's a walking health statistic, but he also looks like Peter Kay, but without the makeup, doesn't he? He... I love his enthusiasm for his work. You know, hats off to him. Who else is reviewing chip shops? Nobody. Nobody. And who else is taking risks apart from James Bond? Da-da-da. So, yeah, as you said, we have, what do you call it? A cold entry into the movie, as traditionally Bond Hold movies. on a second. What? Are we what? going straight? We go, you think we're done now? Is that it? We're done yeah. with corrections? I'd just like to thank Alistair for yet another Seinfeld theme. This time in, this time in the style of Doom music. Doom from id Software. <laughs> It's quite authentic sounding. Actually, I was quite impressed yeah. by it. Can you get a um, hey nonny nonny one? Oh yeah, that's we need a medieval one, please, uh, Alistair. For Alistair, please Green special Man. request. And then a James Bond one. And a Jive Bunny. <laughs> for no particular reason, just to make, just to give you a quest there, Alistair. Also, Paul. Yeah. You were playing tennis today, were you? Because the weather was good. Well, it was very sunny, yes. So you shot out and had a round, what, a match, what, a round robin? What do you call it, you know? Explain. A Swiss? You have a match. A match. Right. Okay, that's nice. It sounds like a relationship almost, doesn't it? But essentially, we we play, you know, an an American tournament or what you might call a round robin, uh, which is a musical term that I think has come to represent, you know, sort of... uh, Rotating, everybody plays, everybody kind of cycles in sports. Right, so a fast. A fast American is what we normally do. Fast American, and what? How did you? How did that you? Is place? Not, again, that is not. Can I clarify? Not an OnlyFans terminology. <laughs> a fast American is just a quick way of playing tennis. So you know, in traditional European tennis, you play advantage. So, uh, so American fast, fast American just gets rid of all that. Right. So you don't you don't play advantage. So if you're on three three, the next point wins it. But yeah. So, but, but this has got naught to do with the gentlemanly behaviour of our protagonist today, who doesn't spend his time in the tennis court ever because it's far too middle class. He spends his time in casinos and whatnot, uh, maybe boar hunting, uh, the pastimes and uh, delectations of the decidedly U class, doesn't he? The upper class. And that is James Bond, Richard. Are we heading towards the movie at some point, presumably? It's time for another musical interlude. It is. I've got three, so let's use them up. Paul, listen, we did not... uh, I mean, no, what I mean to say is we went to the cinema to see this. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, let's just talk about that for quite a long time. Okay. Full disclosure, we went off to the Trafford Centre in uh, in Manchester, a nearby Manchester city centre. 
Um, and th- there's supp- supposedly a Trafford, Trafford Park and a Trafford Industrial Estate, but I didn't see the park anywhere, Richard. No, Trafford Park is the Industrial Estate. It's not, it's not a park with deer running through it. Uh, it oh. It's an Industrial Estate. But there is called. a park on that side of uh, on that side of Manchester where there's a little tram that runs through a little antiquated tram. Don't know no, what that's it's Heaton Park, and it's on it's, the it's north near. side of Manchester. Yeah. When you say no north near. side of Manchester, do you mean Bolton? No, it's actually up towards Berry Way. Greater Manchester, Paul, is a series, a connection of towns and cities, you know. Uh, we don't refer to it as Manchester. Actually, you do. Like, we wouldn't say, oh, Wimbledon's in Greater London, would we? No. No, so we don't say you. that Bolton is in Greater Manchester. Bolton's now in Manchester. I'm not sure that Boltonians would agree with that. Ah, they wouldn't, but the rest of us would. But Wimbledon is inside the M25. Bolton is not within inside the M60. Uh, that's a that's a good thank you. That's a good dividing line, isn't it? It is the M60, the UK's only orbital motorway. Yeah, and for those people who've never been on it, you can only go around it one way. That's not true. That's not true. It's not a roundabout. <laughs> that would be good. It's a giant roundabout. Yeah, it'd make the traffic flow much better, wouldn't it? Probably. Yeah. Now, listen, the cinema. Perhaps the third time in all of COVID, uh, I'm seeing James Bond. And by chance, because it happened to be the next showing, we went in the Dolby Cinema, and I assume that's why the chairs were like they were. I'm guessing not all. Of the auditorium. Like a giant massage chair that... There were power recliners. So it was a big... Astonishing. Wide with buttons. You could go way back with a, a footrest that comes up as well, independently controlled footrest. And it had a little table even. But what it meant was that the leg room was wider than a, you know, a Spanish gangplank, wasn't it? It was incredible. It, it was a revelation. This is how all cinema should be from now on. Because when you think how... Freaking uncomfortable cinema seats are. Those little rack seat things, the pull-down ones. And you wedge your knees up against the seat in front. And your ass goes to sleep in 20 minutes, no question. And you have to you have to ration cheek by cheek which one you're sitting on through the rest of the film. <laughs> so the seating was a revelation. The the sound, the Dolby sound was uh, amaze balls. It was totes amaze, yeah, and uh, yeah, really good and well worth ticket price of thirteen, fourteen princely pounds. So yeah, I, definitely the future of cinema because let's face facts, we're not going to leave the comfort of our home to watch a movie in rickety old seats on a screen that, at the distance that it's presented at, is little bigger than our widescreen at home. You see? That's the thing, isn't it? It's not about the size of the screen; it's about the angle it subtends to your eyeball, isn't it? And generally, I was amazed by the progress that we've seen in the traffic centre since I last visited it. Uh, not, however, by the car parking options, which is like, let's just take over 5,500 acres of agricultural fields so we can have 10,000 parking spaces. Hello, people. Multi-storey car parks. Anybody? No, obviously not. They... <laughs> <laughs> They'd taken up a lot of parking with a fun fair that was closed... And a Tesla event. Yeah, a strange, empty. evocative Tesla event. Yeah, yeah who knows what's like, go- going drive on. Drive through there and you'll be transported to another dimension. They kind of went in but didn't come out kind of thing, didn't they? Weird, yeah. Deeply, deeply sinister kind of cultish things going on behind the curtains there. Amazingly, the Trafford Centre itself has kept. It's now, I guess, historical. Postmodern bad taste. 
you know, its original kind of, uh, <laughs> what do you call them? Alfrescos yeah, in the ceiling. You can't, uh, <laughs> it's a, a fusion of architectural styles over the last Yes, it's crystal maze. Years. It's crystal maze of architectural flavors, you know. <laughs> uh, brilliant. So that was, I, I love the fact that uh, it's still like that. Pulse. Although the, although the cinema seats included a very stable and welcome table on which you could have taken copious notes, I know for a fact... I didn't have a fluorescent pen. You didn't have any way of taking notes during this film, and neither did I. So neither of us have any notes about this film. No. Does that no. make you nervous? A bit, yeah. Flying okay. blind by the seat of your pants. So, uh, praise to the Trafford Centre... Uh, I want to do it again. However, you know, just generally thinking about what these spaces are going to be once online shopping does fully take over our lives because the snowball effect, it's only going one way. I mean, people aren't going to go shopping there apart to look at, you know, uh, famous brand showrooms and then go back home and find the best discount for them. So, I mean, the only people that can stay in that kind of place or the high street generally are, are branded showrooms, I guess. So it's thinking about how would you use that space in the future. I'm not sure the traffic centre is thinking about that early enough. You know, I thought of things like skating rink, trampoline, trampolining zone, sort of after school crammer classes, that kind of thing, kind of semi community, semi semi entertainment mediated entertainment devices. But I don't know what you think. Well, they need more events and attractions, don't they? The fun fair is a good move. Events would be great. Yeah, yeah, pop ups, that kind they of. They need thing. things going on. Yeah, to to attract people. So like a, a reinvention of community, perhaps, because, I mean, our community is moving more and more, more online. So maybe pop-up events would be a thing to use a space for. But generally, just uh, theme parking it or giving it a light theme park feel, you know. It would be nice if the kids could zip down tubes between between floors and that kind of thing. Or those little, little scale electrics track for them to go around the whole, the whole thing, you know, waste half an hour. But these are just ideas. Great food court, however, and I think that's, you know, fairly future-facing, isn't it? Face painting. They need face painting. That, that would sort them out, yeah. It is kind of like a flagship mall for the north, though, isn't there? Isn't it? Or the northwest, at least. Oh, yeah. It has a huge catchment area, or it did when it was first built. But are you a big fan of James Bond films, then? Generally, I wouldn't say fan, although I really do enjoy them when they come out. And I usually, you know, make a note to go and see them. Uh, this one, No Time to Die, I'm really looking forward to, mostly because of COVID. I've not been to the movies. And I, I thought, well, it's either going to be this or Dune that I head back towards movie theatres to go and see. So I've been very much looking forward to this one more than others. So I wouldn't say fan, but I definitely do watch all of them. Who's your favourite Bond, then? Obviously, we have to cover this. Who's the we do, yeah. Right. Who's my favourite of the broccoli brunch? <laughs> uh, Thanks, Boris. <laughs> it was Boris Ovian, wasn't it? Uh, so uh, it's got to be for me, Roger Moore, every time. I'm sorry. Roger Moore. Controversial. A lot of people think he's too camp, too... Fluffed it. You know, too, played it for laughs too much. He did. He did. And there isn't really one where we see him try to be serious with it, is there? But very much like Tom Baker was my Doctor Who, because it's when I was growing up. Roger Moore was my James Bond, it was when I was growing up. So, Well, Sean, Sean came back and occupied a few of them in the mid-80s, didn't they? No, he did one, didn't he? He did Which one. wasn't The Broccolis, it was another production house, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a remake of Thunderball, I think. Remake of Thunderball. Never Say Never Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. Yes, you're right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, 
people are looking for edgy answers or the very safe Sean Connery answer or, you know, oh, George Lazenby was my favourite. Or I think Bob Holness played James Bond in a radio. He did, radio show. He's the first James Bond, I think, or something like that. Weirdly. But no, for me, Roger Moore, how about you? As I say, Roger Moore was my James Bond. I'm same same era, aren't I? I did like Timothy Dalton, and I did like Pierce Brosnan. What about Bo Selector? What about Craig David? Yeah, he's pretty good, but they did change up Bond, didn't they, with Craig David? Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry for that. God damn it. God, yeah. (laughs) Daniel Craig. They uh, they made they tried to make Bond darker and grittier, didn't they? Starting with, but definitely not. It is grittier. It's greyer. It's bleaker. Uh, it's tougher. And he's definitely more macho, isn't he? Than Roger Moore, maybe not Sean Connery. Well, they've also but they've also tried to make Bond more inclusive and less hostile to you know female viewers. Generally, yes. In the last three, uh, but this one. Uh, Fleabag. I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She gave, she was given a specific brief, the character of James Bond. So she's credited as a screenwriter, but she's one of five or so people, isn't she? She didn't write any of the stories. She wrote the screenplay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, so I think she was tasked more with sharpening the dialogue, but... Specifically in the screenplay, the dialogue, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also making that dialogue maybe, obviously, have more... What's the phrase? Have more pop, but also maybe have more modern day relevance. And I can see maybe where where she's toggled it. But the main story writer, I think, is still Neil uh, Neil Purvis. So he had a big hand in the story, backbone, you know, uh, and uh, in the script itself. Now we pieced the story together because, like any Bond movie, it's you know nonstop action near enough, isn't it? Yes. Sometimes. I think that's the idea with Bond, is you're exploring and thinking along with Bond. You know, you're getting a sense of the confusion that, that, you know, he operates in. Maybe in the more modern movies. So in the cold open, uh, you've got a girl, a friend, I think a French girl, staying somewhere in Norway with her mother in uh, next to a frozen lake. This guy turns up in a brief exchange with her mother who is drunk. Her mother tells her that her dad is a killer. An assassin. The little girl doesn't seem to believe that. Although there do seem to be guns all around the house. We find out very shortly afterwards. This guy arrives and he kills the mother. He tries looking for the girl. She runs away over the lake. The ice cracks. She falls into the lake. And she's under the ice trying to get out. And the assassin, who's wearing sort of Japanese-style mask, I think, walks out onto the lake where he can see this girl. Although he seems to have been trying to kill her so far, when he sees her under the lake, it seems he maybe has a change of heart and he shoots a hole in the ice and pulls her out. That's the end of the cold open, really. That's all we know. Plot spoiler will later find out that her father had done something very similar to his family and that he'd be the only one surviving. So maybe he wanted some sort of symmetry in the revenge that one should survive. Unusually... For that bit of the cold open. Was that when the music started? Because we, have, we, we haven't seen James Bond at this point. We then go to um, somewhere in Italy, I think, where James Bond is on, ho- on holiday with his girlfriend, who's actually the Bond girl, if you like, from the previous movie, Spectre. And you recognise her, I think, Paul. You recognise that she was a returning character. So they don't often do, if ever, in James Bond. 
So well done for recognising that. I, do, I don't think I've seen Spectre. You obviously have. Okay, so can I just give you the, the universe backstory to, to these characters? Yeah. So the little girl is yes. Madeline. Madeline. Yeah. Oui. Okay. And her father is Mr. White, who is a baddie. In Inspector. Inspector and... Not Inspector, Inspector. In Casino Royale oh. and in, Qu- in Quantum Solace. Yeah. He appears twice and he escapes. In one of them, the ending of the movie is he escapes. Yeah, he's kind of left as a cliffhanger. Right. The other one, he Bond turns up to his little to Mister White's bolt hole, uh, and Mister White gets killed by somebody else, kind of thing. Okay, so, which is where I think Bond first meets Madeline the adult. Yeah, in that second movie where she's already a practicing psychiatrist. Okay. Does that make some sort of sense? But in this one, we open with Madeline as a child, not when her father's getting it. Her father gets it when she's a much when she's an adult, but when her mother gets killed. Yeah. So we've been building story arc throughout throughout the Daniel Craig era films, then really, which is weird because Bond, as you say, is usually discreet. You know, yeah. you know, there's a specific there's a level of specificity to each story that means they're they're finished when they finish, kind of thing. Yeah, they're normally monster of the week style, as it were. Yes, yeah. But I think there's a reason for this, yeah. Because in this movie, we are revisiting moments of death. Death is a theme in this movie, yeah. So we're revisiting her death. And then pretty soon we cut to the second scene, the second major scene, which is uh, Bond on vacation in Italy, enjoying himself. Is that right, yeah? Uh, Sorry, a festival of secrets, letting go of secrets, yeah. But at the same time, he's visiting the grave of another previous character, Vesper. Who was his dead partner? That, that's Casino Royale, was it? That is Casino Royale. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so her death, and he's at essentially a mausoleum in the in the in the hillside there. Uh, I guess we'd call it a graveyard. And uh, you know he's 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 visiting and paying respects to her. So we get a theme that death and focus on death is a, a major overarching theme that runs through the movie. But, boom, suddenly, Bond starts. Because whilst he's visiting the grave, a bomb goes off and it explodes. And Bond is left stunned momentarily. Yeah. Now, this is gritty real, gritty real wasn't it? We get we get an idea of shell shock here in terms of how it's presented. Yeah, it's a, it's a very like post-Saving uh, Private Ryan thing, isn't it? The way yeah. they do explosives now where you know they put you in it and your ears are ringing. Uh, and but it also, you know, presents Bond in a fallible way, doesn't yeah, it? That we yeah. don't normally see him. Yeah, he's very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, we often view him in, in quite a detached mode, don't we? Where we don't necessarily experience his, his emotions or his confusion firsthand. But despite the fact that he was basically blown up, he does survive. He gets up and he starts trying to escape. Assassins are closing in on him from all sides now on motorbikes and and uh, big black cars. And this is the first traditional barnstormer, isn't it, really? Yeah. A classic Bond chase. Uh, classic uh, classic villains identified by facial disfigurement. I don't, I don't know what this says about the Bond story writers, but there we go. Yeah. Um, we meet Cyclops, you know, the, the guy with the, with the dicky eye. Yeah, uh, that's right. He's got, he's got one eye, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, it's a good, good chase. I enjoyed this bit. Yeah. Really good chase. Uh, obviously, he manages to get away. Uh, he doesn't trust Madeline anymore, though, because who could have known that he was here in Italy with her and visiting 
Vesper's grave. Who could possibly have known that? And particularly because Vesper was a double crosser, you see. So it's highly resonant at that point that, you know, God, these women in my life, Madeline's going to be a double crosser too. So he jumps in his car, which is the classic Aston Martin DB5 from the original Doctor No. And exactly like the little toy car that I had, had a little guy that the roof popped open and it would eject a guy out of the roof. Did you have one Do of those? Do you know these? how much those are worth now? I've still got mine in this box. How, how how much are they worth, Paul? In pristine condition, upwards of £200. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were going to say thousands. thousands. Come on, there were millions of them made. And is yours in pristine condition? No. No, I think mine's worth about 50 quid. I mean, this is from a film that, you know, was out long before, you know, I was a kid. So I'm not sure why. It's a cool toy, though. It's a cool toy. It has lots of bits on it. But for me, the Bond car was always the white Lotus Esprit that Roger Moore had. Oh, that went underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this old car, I think, uh, this old Aston Martin, was, I think, the first example of a really gadgeted up Bond car, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So... And it is yeah. beautiful, yeah. And we get all the firepower, firepower, quite explosive firepower uh, that maybe in the original film didn't represent of its, you know, of its machine guns that come out of the headlights and stuff like that. It's brilliant. Uh, and as as with most modern Bond movies, the Bond car gets mostly wrecked, but not entirely wrecked in this one. So there we go. Yeah, he certainly scrapes it up, scuffs it up. And yeah. They shoot at it a lot, a lot, but it, it's completely bulletproof, as we see. Yeah, what do you think about the bullet, bulletproof glass? Was that believable? Because, you know, Cyclops, or Primo, to, to give him his true name, uh, is, he's called Cyclops in parentheses in, in, in you know, in the IMDb pages. Parenthetical, uh, okay. But he's parenthetical Cyclops, yeah. But Primo uh, is his real name. To his, to his friends, to his mates, you would call him Primo. Oh, he's real carried today. <laughs> but, I mean, he shoots the, you know, he, he picks on a weak point in the, in the, in the, in the armor glass and keep shooting at it and, and somehow the bullets just don't get through was that a moment of weakness in the plotting that you, you found or not well we're led to believe that Bond waits until the moment where it's about to get shot like it's about to fail isn't it and then he acts yeah. I think he's doing it to scare Madeline or something scare her into confessing who knows um, but I mean yeah I'm not sure Certainly, the kind of glass that you see on a DB5, I'm not sure could be as bulletproof as all, as all that. There are bulletproof vehicles that are very resistant to bullets, but the glass there is inches thick and very heavy. I'm not sure the thin, classic car kind of glass on a DB5 would really sustain that kind of firepower, but there we go. They escape. Bond takes Madeline to a railway station and pops her onto a train making it clear to her that you know they're parting company and he, he, she's not going to see him again. Clearly he doesn't trust her. And I think that's when the music kicks in, actually. It does, yeah. Yeah, so we get Billy Billy Eilish performing veritably to a standard where she could probably get Elon Musk as a boyfriend. <laughs> well, he is single. He is single now. And so is Grimes. And Grimes is wanting to start up a lesbian commune on Mars. So maybe she'd prefer to go with Grimes. But I didn't know. I didn't think it was a knockout intro theme. No, and interestingly, they tend to. It's okay. Th- this whole movie is like an homage or a memorial to all of the previous Bond movies. It is. It's a eulogy. Yeah, yeah. So you get a lot of musical 
uh, overtures of previous Bond movies happening. Overtures, well. yes. A sort of intersectional overture of, I think it was all the time in the world. Yeah. With yeah. the Bond theme itself were mixed in together yeah. with some sort of orchestral fluff on top to make them both slightly recognisable. I, I thought it mixed together well, but there's a bit too much of it, really. Well, who was going to be the, who was going to be the director? It was going to be Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle, yeah. But then it changed. To Fukunaga. Yeah. He did a good job. I wonder what Danny Boyle was going to do with it that they didn't like. Don't know. The cinematography is by Sangren. And I've got to say that these two together, for me, they really wowed me out. On the third scene, we cut to, uh, we cut to people upsetting down what is a black... A black lab, you know, an undisclosed lab for, for, for MI6 uh, in the middle of London. Not sure why you would put, like, a bio-weapons research unit in the middle of London. I don't know, no. Hiding in plain sight. But can I just praise the cinematography there? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, they've got them upselling down, and the upsell line is kind of like a compass needle. And they pan the shots, the angle of the shots, so slowly the compass needle rises to the middle of the sky, and yet half the sky is the reflection of you know the backdrop in the in the sky rise itself, and it's all suffused with beautiful pinks and purples. It's just beautiful art generally, you know, and just the symmetry of the movement of the camera and everything. It's just a delightful shot. And what I would say is that a lot of the cinematography is sumptuous here. Well, it turns out it's Cyclops, sorry, Primo, as you would call him, back again. He's leading a team to bust their way into this secret lab. Apparently, abseiling down from the roof of the building is just the, the way you do these things. It's the easiest way to get in. You would do one here, yeah. In broad daylight. Yeah, well, it's dust. It, it being a black lab, you know, there would be no CCTV cameras just, just looking skyward to each each blank face of a, of a skyscraper. It wouldn't be very easy to do that at all. It's easy to get on the roof of a skyscraper. It's very simple, you know. Um, so Parachute. once you're on the roof, you just abseil down. Well, you take the lift up there, don't you? You could take the lift, yeah. yeah or you could climb up the outside. <laughs> um, if you climb up the outside, why would you climb back down again is the question. <laughs> if you're taking a lift, why not stop on the floor you want instead of going to the Precisely. roof? Precisely. There we go. Anyway, they swing down and obviously they're going to cut their way in with lasers, big glass plates on the outside of this, uh, this skyscraper, cut their way in, Mission Impossible style, and swing on in through their abseil ropes. And that's what they do, pretty much, isn't it? And there's um, one of the scientists seems to have an indication that this is happening. He gets a phone call, doesn't he? Yeah. And he gets told. Does he have an accent a bit like a meerkat, perhaps? <laughs> a welcome return to the Bond franchise of Russians as the main villain. <laughs> Evil Russian people. About time, I say. So he's a compromised scientist. You know, he's being held to some sort of psychological hostage obviously, uh, and uh, maybe he's under duress, but he's kind of, you know, he realises his vision can be, can be perhaps realised if he works with these people. It's not revealed who they are yet. And so it's obvious he's he's the inside. He's got a tip off of the raid that's going to come. Yeah, that makes sense. So he swallows a USB drive and he swaps it out with another one. And then he goes along with the raiders to open the secret sort of secure area to get the weaponized virus that they're working on in there, which they call Heracles, don't they? That's the code word for it. Heracles. And I don't know what Heracles is in Greek mythology. I'm sorry. Maybe you do, Richard. 
I think Heracles, isn't that just the Greek for Hercules? Oh, okay. One of the scientists is, is British comedian Hugh Dennis. Yeah. Now, he's lucky. He, get, he doesn't get killed immediately. He's needed for the key escrow, isn't he? So he's needed for the key escrow to, to access it. But once he opens, helps open the uh, uh, the vault, he's he's duly dispatched with also. So. The key escrow, yeah. Escrow, okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how you pronounce that. Es- well, how do you pronounce the Bond villain who's in prison in this movie? I don't know. Don't <laughs> yesterday, yesterday you were pronouncing it Blowfield. Or Blowveld. But it's Blofe- Blofeld. Blofeld. Uh, yeah, so uh, they've got, the bad guys have got the Heracles virus. And when M finds out, he immediately asks where James Bond is. Or did, did he say where James Bond or where 007 is? I can't recall. Not sure. And the, the reason that that's important, of course, is Bond is retired, really. He's not, no longer in the service. That's why he was on holiday. And in fact, they've given his code number to a new agent. Indeed. I don't think this is a big secret, is it? I think, I think everyone knows this. Or know me. Know me, know me, yeah. Uh, so they're reusing the 007 code. Uh, you know, the fact that... I know we discussed this after the movie, but the fact that there have been lots of different James Bonds over our lifetime and before. I'd always assumed that, you know, James Bond was like a pseudonym used by, you know, a British agent. You'd assume so, yeah. 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 It's not like he's regenerating like Doctor Who, is it? And it clearly is different time periods that they're operating in. You know, it's surprising that she wasn't called Jamie Bond or something. Jemima. Jemima Bond. Whatever, yeah, whatever. So they're reusing his uh, code, which is a source of contention during the movie as well for them. But... um, it turns out that he's actually moonlighting or side gigging with the CIA. Oh, later, yeah. Later transpires. Because Felix Leiter shows up, doesn't he, and asks for help. Uh, and he's got another agent in tow with him. A guy called. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's his name? It, Logan Ash. He's called Logan Ash. Logan Ash. Yeah. Logan Ash. Well, he's the one who James Bond refers to him as, uh, you know, who's. Who's brought along the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon, yeah. <laughs> Okay, can I interject here? I mean, it's one of three gags in the movie, or three traditional Bond pithy moments. Uh, you know, I think the other part is he kind of blows somebody up and says it all went to his head or something, did he? That Yeah, he. well, he's been given a watch, hasn't he, at the end of the movie. He's been given his classic gadget watch, which has got a short-range EM pulse built into it. And at the end of the movie, he's fighting with your mate Primo, who's got the Cyclops eye. They call it a bionic eye, don't they? M calls it and in uh, whilst he's struggling with Primo, he activates his watch very close to Primo's eye, and it makes it blow up. Uh, and yeah, he said he says to Q actually, I showed him your watch, and it blew his mind. Blew his mind. Yeah. <laughs> There's another moment where, like, uh, plot spoil, it's kind of revealed that he does have uh, a family and children, and uh, he's in a situation where they're in. They're threatened, and he kind of says, oh, "You know, I've got to go and maybe help my." And he looks at himself quizzically, family, and goes slightly millennial, millennial in his tones for a while. Like, <laughs> oh my, oh my God, totes amazing! I have children, so there, just there one. Go. He has one child. Well, that we know of. I mean, James Bond could have kids all over the place, couldn't he? And Boris has six. So. Exactly. 
You get a feeling Boris probably styles himself on James Bond, don't you? Definitely, definitely, definitely. It's how he, he moral licensing. He's got a moral license to kill. So we get a sense of eulogy all through all through the film. Plot spoiler: Felix does not meet a good end. You know, we've talked about Vesper, and what's interesting about Vesper is she is the inspiration for Shaken Not Stirred. So it's kind of like Shaken Not Stirred represents Bond, and all this is now becoming a memory. You know, so it's interesting, really. The, the people that they've chosen to focus on the aspects of death with. But there we go. Anyway, back to the plot, Rich. Well, Felix is persuading Bond to go to Cuba because that's where they've tracked this scientist guy down to, I think. I think that was the plot. And there's some kind of soiree happening, which is going to be full of spectre people, I think. Yes. So he hooks him up with a Cuban agent in Havana. Uh, and Bond goes there, he meets this, frankly, astonishingly beautiful Cuban agent uh, whose name I can't remember. Uh, but she's only in the movie very for a very short period, to be fair. Um, but she claims she's had three weeks training and she's fully prepared. Uh, they go to this event and they're knocking around and there's a load of these spectre bad guys doing bad guy stuff in this party. There's no gambling. Um, but uh, yeah, they're doing various things. Interestingly, they're carrying around this bionic eye on a little velveteen pillow, aren't they? Yes. And the implication here is that someone is watching the party and experiencing the party through the eye. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, uh, at some point it becomes clear that they know exactly who Bond is. And Spotlight is trained upon him. This happened previously where he's watching from the uh, from the rafters or from the gallery at a, a Spectre meeting in Italy. Maybe two movies back. So, uh, you know. so they've got yeah. form doing the same thing. Yeah. Well, the, they make an announcement, don't they? Something about how, uh, you know, this is sort of targeted at Bond and he's going to die now, blah, blah, blah. And I think the idea is that this virus, this Heracles virus, can be programmed with DNA to target a specific person. So this is like a test case. They're going to kill Bond with it and prove to themselves that what they've got here is a world-beating, world-dominating threat. So in principle, they're going to spray this thing on the whole party, but only Bond will be affected. He'll die an agonising death in front of all of his nemeses. So just to you know, step back and explain this virus, or as they say, they say it's some sort of nanotechnology, a nanobot, do they call it? Or a biobot? Yeah, although it was researched in this virus lab, it seems that, according to Q, it's a nanobot. So the idea is that they're not going to spray Bond with it directly in the party. They're just going to spray it around, and it'll transmit and replicate harmlessly in the population, except when it reaches its target, it will die a sudden a sudden death. I don't, no, I think you're wrong. I think they, are, I think oh. they do spray it down on the party. Oh, uh, they do, right. Yeah. Yeah, yes, is. they do. They do. They do. But yeah, no, it kills people basically instantly, doesn't it? Except for our good friend James Bond, our scientist who is work, who is a double agent. Really, he has swapped out Bond's DNA in the programming of this virus to the DNA yeah. of all the Spectre people at the party. Why would he do that? Because he's not working for Blofeld. But then, how did he know that they were arriving? to storm the black lab. Well, he was told 
by by whom the real bad guy, who is this? But how would he know? Because he, the real bad guy, is keeping tabs on Blofeld and Spectre. Ah, okay, is that powerful? I see. Righty. Okay. So, so essentially, this this lure to bring Bond to the Spectre headquarters or the, or the temporary Spectre Spectre uh, carnival or festival or what you want to call it meetup. Uh, is actually a means of game games of throwing the entire Spectre organization. Is that not right? Yeah, exactly. Whoa! And they all die there in the party. Bond escapes, <laughs> uh, and there's he, only one remaining member of Spectre. He fights his way out of the party, and they see the scientist who's done the switcheroo, escaping the party, and they chase after him. The Cuban agent kicks ass, and they get a car. And they managed to grab him off the off the street. He was. Uh, it turns out, doesn't it, that the Nomi, the new 007, is also there, uh, and she nearly nabs the scientist, but they kind of n- nick him off her. Now they'd met before in Jamaica, if you remember, when his car didn't start. She picked him up on the bike, pretending to be a local, and she went back to his house, went straight to the bedroom, and took a wig off and said. You know, revealed herself. What were they doing in Jamaica? That's where Bond was when the Heracles virus was stolen. It was like living there, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's quite early on. Yeah, because Jamaica had been the location for some previous Bond movies, hadn't it? Where uh, Live and Let Die was set in Jamaica, I think, as well. So it, I, I think it's sort of a, again, it's another memorial to previous Bond movies. Although they yeah. didn't feature very heavily; it was only there briefly. Um, okay, so the story's coming together quite well now, isn't it? You know, we've got a really nice bit of science, which is the idea of these bots or these uh, these nanoviruses. Well, viruses are nano, aren't they? These viruses that will replicate and, and harmlessly transmit through the population, uh, only to kill an intended program target, a genetically programmed target. I've certainly heard, sort of, you know. Futurologists talk about the idea of a virus that can be programmed with DNA. It's a nice idea, isn't it? And it works for the movie. Uh, and, and then we've got the idea of two counterposing villains here. Uh, well, one side of which is almost immediately taken out, Spectre, which leads us to wonder, you know, who who is the other set? And why didn't Cyclops die if he was working for Spectre, weirdly? Well, he changed signs, didn't he? Yeah, I think he was more of a... Henchman, though. Ah, he's a henchman. He's, he's not okay. a mover or shaker, possibly. He's a hired muscle. Judging by shell suits and old Maserati cars. <laughs> he's a bit of local hired muscle, yeah. Okay. So the the other bad guy that we're alluding to is obviously the guy from the very start. Mr. Blowfield, yeah. No, 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 no. No, the, the guy from the start in the <laughs> Japanese kabuki. Sorry, house. sorry. And the only surviving member of Spectre is Mr. Blowfield. Blowfield. Blofeld, yeah. that's what I said. This <laughs> is Blofeld, yeah. Who's who's holed up like in Silence of the Lambs? You know, he's in some high security effort in the middle of MI6. Very high security, very high security, really high security. He's kept in a kind of a lift that goes horizontally. There aren't yeah. many horizontal lifts, you know, in the world. And obviously, they're keeping him as an asset to maybe prime him and pump him for information. But at what point do we discover that his eye is the seeing eye? that has been viewing the party 
and you know allows them to stay in contact with spectrum. I don't know how that's ever really explained. We just have to accept that he's somehow able to see through his eye even when he's in prison. And eventually, Bond uh, sort of gets access to go and see Blofeld in prison, doesn't he? Uh, the only way you can do that is by going with Bofeld's psychiatrist, who's the only person he'll speak to, it would seem. And it turns out that Blofeld's psychiatrist is Madeline, his ex-girlfriend. Crikey. And when she's preparing to go to this visit, she is visited by the other big baddie, the guy in the kabuki mask, whose name is Lucifer Shafron or something, something similar. Oh, Lucifer Safran, I think. Now, he also has a facial disfigurement. Yeah, it is a bit of a trope in Bond movies, isn't it? And it's somewhat backward. But I think it is averted in this one because it's explained that his family was killed by dioxin poisoning. Now, dioxin poisoning... By Madeline's father. Now, dioxin poisoning is something that's really been used and it does leave, you know, horrific facial scarring if you survive it. You know, James Bond is at its strongest when it's kind of close to the truth. Well, uh, let's just stop here and talk about reality for a moment. We, we know that, you know, the Novichuk, is it Novichuk yeah. poisoning yeah. occurred? Pretty much at the behest of, uh, not the Russian government, but maybe, you know, the Russian... If the Russian intelligence service is listening to the podcast, it will increase our listenership. So the Russian establishment, yeah. But let's say the Russian establishment ordered these, okay. Uh, and at the same time, we don't have enough gas. And at the same time, we've got a gas pipeline from Russia, you know. I mean, like, the realities of these situations are potentially quite scary, you know. You know, the Russians have done this stuff. They've poisoned people on British shores. Not for the first time, by the way. There was also the polonium poisoning that happened in London. There was the... I'm not sure where the dioxin poisoning happened. There was also, quite a few years ago now, there was the guy who got killed with the umbrella... That's right, yeah. Ricin in a little pellet. Ricin poisoned in a pellet. Ricin. It was shot down uh, an umbrella, which was like a gun, disguised as an umbrella, into somebody's leg. A tiny pellet, but with ricin in it, that, you know, could could kill you many times over because it's so poisonous. So at this point, at what point do we head to uh, the deserted island, you know, the uh, Moonraker base of the real baddie? Oh, this is the other great thing about this Bond. Again, like the old Bonds of old, we've got a proper, we've got a proper bad guy lair, evil guy lair with, with an underwater kind of access hatch. It's got staff members in coloured uniforms and safety gear on, and it's got concrete doors that open. You know, it's a whole Radio Caroline, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's well, it's apparently it's an island. Uh, somewhere between Russia and Japan or something. It used to... It's disputed, yeah. used to be a, a missile base, so it's got missile silos with these big doors that open. What Mr. Sa- Saffron, Saffron, Saffin is doing is he's making more of this Heracles virus and he's programming it with the DNA of lots of people. And everybody in the world. Yeah. Or nearly everybody in the world. And his plan, obviously, it would seem, is going to be to poison everyone with the Heracles nanites. And the terrible thing about these Heracles nanites, as we learn, is once you've got them, once you've been infected by them, they stay with you forever. They never go away. So if you are ever to touch anyone with the matching DNA, they're going to they're gonna die. You would be a 
mortal threat here. You are the bearer of the Lurgy. Okay, so that's setting up, up for something, obviously, in the plot. Otherwise, why mention it? Uh, and uh, there we go. I mean, pretty much plot-wise, we're there, aren't we? We just need to see the denouement and, and the finalization of this. So, so how does it all end up? Well, Madeline and her daughter, who is introduced to us quite suddenly in the film, and you have to assume is Bond's daughter, get kidnapped while they are trying to escape from Saffron's men who are chasing them through the forests. Now, Madeline's at first pretty much at pains to insist upon that it's not his daughter, because obviously she doesn't want to... Compromise him, yeah. Burden him. Yeah, burden him with the worry of, of, of having a daughter that's threatened because of who he is. Bad guy takes her and the daughter to his secret island lair. Meanwhile, James Bond and the new 007 know me, and they're going to infiltrate by using a special glider that's going to be dropped out of a, a transport plane. And then become an underwater kind of summary. And again, this is classic Bond gadgetry, isn't it? With really it, yeah. amazing you know, uh, aerospace technology and stuff. Bond has been equipped at this point with his magic, magic magnetic ray gun watch, is that right? So some great gadgetry, yeah. yeah. And the usual, don't press that Bond, we haven't tested it yet, <laughs> kind of stuff, so... And Nomi's given this device that maps the interior of the complex and sends the three-dimensional map back to Q on the transport plane. He's nice. the screen guy. Although most of the time they can't hear him because the radio doesn't work in the concrete bunkers. You'd think they would have thought of that. You'd think Q might have been all over that, really. Yeah, Q. She's dropping the ball Jeez. on that. We have a bit of insight into Q in his life. He's kind of like getting ready for a date and he has a hairless cat. <laughs> Are they called sphinxes, those hairless cat things? Or am I making that up? Don't know. Well, this was another joke, Paul. You missed another joke. This is the fourth joke. Because doesn't Bond say you can get those ah, with fur now? Quite. That's classically <laughs> deadpan Bond, isn't it? That's the more Sean Connery pun, isn't it, than the Roger Moore pun? Well, no, if it was Roger Moore, he would have said something about a pussy, wouldn't he? They do avert the womanising Bond stereotype. Apart from one, anything else, he's virtually married with a kid now. And when he meets yeah. the stunning Cuban secret agent and she kicks ass and stuff after three weeks of training, at the end, when she's saying goodbye to him, he doesn't kiss her or anything. He just shakes a hand like a professional. And when 007 first meets him in a wig, she's kind of toying with inverting the roles there, isn't she? When she goes into his bedroom with no intention of seducing him, and yet he doesn't pursue her in the way that he normally would do when somebody turns up into his sort of hotel room with a ceiling fan in the tropics moment kind of thing. So that was played with explicitly, you know, need a ride, no ride is going to be got by by Bond in this movie kind of thing. So, yeah, that all kind of worked. I, I thought instead of shoehorning a rework bond into this. The conscious irony of some some of those, uh, some of that dialogue and, and some of that uh, some of that scripting was was worked very well. It was quite but taut, look, I thought. <clears throat> spoiler alert and everything. Big spoiler alert. We gotta to come to this. The fact of the matter is, this is a swan song and it is a memorial to Bond. The reason why we're seeing echoes of all the previous Bond movies and the music and the little It's because Bond he, is no he's more. gonna die at the end of this movie and he does die. He just died. They've got to give Bond a death mm. fitting of this, you know, legacy, this history that we've, we're seeing played out and recapitulated and reworked. Um, and I think it works. I think it works quite well. 
Uh, before before he dies, uh, we see the old the old uh, the old M and other dead people on the walls of the inner sanctum of MI6. So there's death all around there. Yeah. But how does he die in the end? Well, he dies a hero's death. Doesn't yeah. He? Well, it's pretty simple, really. There's no artifice to it in the end, is there? He gets. Madeline and his child are away and out with Nomi, the new 007. They escape the island, go back to safety. He's got to stay behind. He's got to make sure the missile silo doors are open so that they can get the Navy, a British cruiser somewhere, he's launch. got cruise missiles on it, launches cruise missiles. They need to have the doors open so they can destroy the Heracles viral plant in totality. As they do, plot start it in the end. Now, the weird thing is, you know, Q says you've got seven minutes to get out of there, hot-footed out of there, but there's no seven-minute timer as there usually is in a Bond movie. I think that's significant. It's usually, you know, that that eternal movie plot timer that kind of goes slower, uh, just achingly never gets to zero. That never gets to zero trope isn't there, you see. And that's an indication that, you know, reality is going to hit hard and that Bond is actually going to die. He can't escape. Even in, even in film land, he can't escape with immortality. More than any other time you've ever seen it, there isn't going to be that moment where you think he's blown up, but he comes out okay. Because in his final fight with Saf- Saffron, Safin, I don't know how you pronounce that name, uh, in his final fight, Safin's got this tube on him, this glass ampule, this vial hanging on him, contains Heracles matched to the DNA of Madeline and his daughter. He smashes the ampule and it goes on Bond's face and you know Bond's face is cut so you know that he has the Heracles nanites in him and if he ever now touches Madeline or his daughter they'll die they're dead he makes a 9-11 phone call I'm not going to make it I'm staying here live on without me kind of thing which I thought was delivered very well and then afterwards when it's all over you know uh there's no yellow raft in the sea that he that he floats back home on because obviously he's gone. Although they do have that yellow raft somewhere in the middle of the movie. It's usually an ending of a Bond movie. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Again, kind of reflection, reflections on earlier early Bond movies. But then uh, M gives him a eulogy at the end, which I thought was terse but very effective about not surviving life but living life, you know, uh, to the full. So I thought it all the circle was very neatly squared, or the square was very neatly circled either way. And there was a finality to to this movie that said, you know, Daniel Craig as Bond, and maybe Bond himself, will never be back. Yeah, yeah. And interesting, a bold move, I think. Um, So, what did we think? Well, there's a lot to say, isn't there? I I thought, first of all, you asked me, like, as we're watching it, you know, Tenet versus 007 versus, you know, No Time to Die. What do you see as being the future of espionage movies and that kind of thing? Uh, They are very different breeds, aren't they? At the end of the day, this was a good old-fashioned barnstormer with some toggles to its relevance in the modern world. But it remained quite an old-fashioned storyline. In that sense, in terms of complexity, although the plot was complex, it didn't really compare to Tenet at all. Yeah. So in the end, I thought it was still quite an old-fashioned Barnstormer from Bond. Uh, I love the science in this one. I love the nanotechnology and the idea of targeted DNA and uh, a virus that uses network effects to become effective only at the very end when that network had grown to to be large enough to, to, to touch 
to touch the uh, to touch the victim. I thought that was really really well thought out. I love the revisit to old gadgets and you know a real effort to to return to the idea of gadgets in Bond films because I think or special gadgets you know in Bond films. So I loved all that and uh, and it was really great that we were able to have some sort of final closure to Daniel Craig and his tenure of the Bond series. So in all, I thought it were, Richard. What did you think? <clears throat> I made that comparison to Tenet because I think watching Tenet did feel like a Bond movie at times. And it was. Yeah. I think it's obvious that Christopher Nolan w- had wanted to make a Bond movie, and in a sense he did. He carved out his own space for a, yeah. a Bond-esque film. But yeah, they are different. They're very different beasts. And this... Mm, and there's a, there's an idea of pace, but accessible pace in Bond that Tenet doesn't achieve. Yeah, it does. Like this moves at a hell of a pace, but it kind of really carries everybody along with it. Whether or not you you can not you can not follow the plot entirely and still really enjoy a Bond movie. Yeah, I mean, despite that it's quite heavy, it's quite serious for a Bond movie, and it has a quite a somber mm. ending that I think will make people cry. It was touching. It was a very touching. Uh, it is an enjoyable film. It it is a good Bond movie. It's a it's a tweaked formula of good old fashioned romp and romp along it does. We go from where we go from uh, Italy to Jamaica to London to Cuba to to this island, a disputed island north of Russia. It, that kind of world hop aspect of Bond is really enjoyable. Uh, within two and a half hours, it is quite a long Bond movie. This one, yeah, I thought the tone was right. The quote, by the way, I just looked it up, was actually from a Jack London novel. And I think its deep significance in Bond is that I think it's been used before when people thought Bond was dead. In this movie, we get his submission. He kowtows before the villain, but it's a fake. Of course. He's fainting. Of course it is. All right. Let's do acting then. Creditable performances from everybody. Uh, I thought M was a bit flat, maybe. I thought Daniel Craig was really good. Uh, and, and I thought his uh, girlfriend was good. Even the kid wasn't annoying. The new 007, I like what she did. She kind of had uh, a different take on being an agent, you know, very yeah. straightforward. I, I like her as well. And the female, Cuban female agent is, was also amazing. The baddies, I thought, were really believable. Uh, I thought it was ridiculous, you know, the ridiculous premise of what this baddie has done. You know, this multi-billion dollar island that somehow he's, he's managed to build his, his uh, poison garden on. But apart from that, you know, as, as, as bad as they were, they were really believable. I thought Cyclops was obviously a reflection back to Jaws, was he called? The big... He was in more than just Moonraker, wasn't he? I think he was in... Did you not feel that? There's somehow there was a reflection of him there. Well, there's also the guy with the metal arm, wasn't there? Uh, there yeah. was the guy with the metal arm. <laughs> yeah, they were quite yeah. similar characters. All these reflections back to earlier Bonds, I thought, really, really worked well. It was a sunset movie. Great. Okay, so I'm scoring it eight. It was, it was great. It was more than perfunctory. In fact, it was a good show. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go seven for acting uh, for no good reason. You know, it's a Bond movie. It's a bit pantomime, isn't it? But, but it was very, it was very good. So, sorry, the plotting, I think you have to view in the context of this being a Sunset's one song movie. Uh, and therefore, I thought that side worked really well. As usual, the twists are a little over complex. 
Uh, you want to be puzzled to some level. So, generally, the plot, I'm going to give a seven. Yeah, I, d- I don't know why you put the bioweapons lab in central London on the nth floor of a skyscraper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was silly, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll give it a seven, though. It it The bit it does, as you say, it does some nice callbacks really well. It evokes the spirit of Bond very effectively. So since you co- talked about the science, let's talk about the science. I think you're right. Are we including gadgets here, or are we including gadgets, gadgets in action? Oh, I, I think gadgets belong in science, particularly in a Bond movie. Yeah, okay. And yeah, I thought this was reasonably good. As you say, it's quite a scientific Bond by by all accounts. You know, we're talking about poisoning and we're talking about viruses. No wonder they delayed this over COVID, like you said. It's just too many, too much, too much resonance. So much resonance it could take down the Golden Arch Bridge. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was it was right on the nose, uh, and you know it seems believable technology, uh, whether it be nanites. Think about nanotechnology, especially in this context. Is you always can't help thinking that nanites sound nice, but surely the easiest way to do it is using some kind of microorganism. Microorganisms they are like yeah. super nanites already. But wait a minute, Richard. I'm guessing there would be a disable switch somehow in a nanite, you know, some radio frequency. You designed them so, you know, you could actually turn them off eventually or something like that. Does that make sense? Well, as if you couldn't put that in a biological order. Oh, you could thread that into a biological order these these days. So, um, after Dolly the Sheep and all that, not? All that. uh, So maybe it wouldn't be nanites. Maybe it would be a virus. But the basic idea, I think, is terrifyingly plausible. the laser cutting through the windows I enjoyed, and the watch. Think about that EM watch. Obviously, it takes quite a lot of energy to generate an EM pulse. Maybe a watch may not have quite that <laughs> amount. But it was quite short range. It was hey, quite short come range. on. So, you know, they're not overdoing yeah. it. It's not like the whole city block went out with power. So I'll, I'm going to give it an 8, which I think for a Bond movie is very high praise indeed. We also had Smart Blood, we had the Cars, we had the Glider Submarine, Chock-A-Block. Ooh. I'm going to give it a nine. Okay. Loved it. Yeah. Okay. What a great send-off for James. Okay, finally, I'm guessing we're going to go to SFX and action. What do you think of the effects and the action? Cracking. Throughout this this is really good. Love the action. Non-stop, yeah. The fight scenes as well. Uh, you know. They were gritty. They were, they were, you could hear the bones crunch, couldn't you? In some of them. This was real. You know, at one point, doesn't some guy just straight out break someone's arm? I think Bond, he breaks his arm, doesn't he? Like yeah. over his knee. Yeah. When yeah. they're in the pool at the end, when they're in the pool, then he, he sort of takes, he, he, you know, he takes limbs out of sockets kind of thing. It's really... He's been shot. He's been shot three or four times already. The car chases in the Aston Martin, brilliant. The machine gun stuff. Oh, it's got to be a nine. What about when he jumped off that bridge with holding onto that wire to escape them? Yeah. Escaping Cyclops, yeah. That for me, that beginning it really set it off. That yeah. beginning barnstorm yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, it was. It, it was. It was. Like I say, the cinematography is sumptuous, but this was like exquisite ballet. I thought, you know, exquisite cinema ballet. So yeah, this this was amazing special effects and amazing action. I'm gonna have to give it oh. a ten. I'm really sorry <laughs> about being so enthusiastic. Go to a ten, Paul. If you go to a ten, where do you go from there? I don't. I don't know. It is very good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, an overall score then. Overall, for me, this is a two hundred fifty million dollar budget. It's already earned back one hundred twenty 
million in 50 countries disbarring the US. So it's, it's obviously going to make some money back, uh, which means the audience generally think it's a success. I have to go with them and say it's a 9 out of 10, Rich. Yeah, you know, you could you could think a Bond movie is a bit of an embarrassment, like a guilty pleasure. But I don't think this one yeah. was. I think it actually achieves some of its reconstruction of, of the character. And yeah. for all my misgivings about promoting British exceptionalism to people, we didn't. We didn't. You know, I, I'd rather the British exceptionalism promoted by Sigourney in The Green Knight and its mysteries than um, a superhero super secret agent. But, you know, ultimately, they he's dead. You know, what what more can you say? Right? That's That era of colonial imperialism is, is buried, I think. Roll on um, Nomi as 007 or whoever they, they want to put in that role. But there we go. Yeah, I, I'll give it a nine. I'll give it a nine in summary. Well, uh, the one thing we said about James Bond is, despite its flaws, what it does, what it did kind of do for young men was like teach you how to be a gentleman in some ways. You know what? What you're supposed to? What the hell are you supposed to do with a trouser press in a hotel room? Well, you know, I'm not sure. Roger, you know, James Bond ever did that, but. You can imagine he he might have done it. You know, he he yeah, before he went to the casino, he might have popped something in the trouser press. Well, Paul, there we go. Um, until we return to the cinema, which I think will be for Dune, we're going to have to find something to watch on television. What do you suggest? On to next time, Richard. You are saying let's watch some TV. I don't think we can watch TV for our, this series, can we? I mean, I mean, films on television. For goodness sake. What we've been doing hey, for the past year. Hey, I was I was only being literal with your words. I don't. It's been a long day for both of us. Look, okay, so uh, yeah, I'm well, I'm eager to watch more. My appetite has been whetted for films the last two weeks of great content. These two high scoring movies, Richard. I think it falls upon me to present two yes. options to you. Does it not? Okay. Well, I've got an old suggestion that's resurfaced, and that is Hush. Do you know about that movie? Yeah, Rich? So it's a deaf. A deaf girl trapped in a house by a home invader. Very frightening. And is it all by webcam no, or no, dash no. cam or by no, it's Zoom meeting? Normal, normal cinema, no, not any particular format choice, I think. No particular format, but scary it's nonetheless. Scary yeah? because of its very premise, surely, Paul. It sounds scary to me. Okay, and the other choice is Infinite. Okay. This is new, I think. I've seen new. pictures of it on Netflix. I don't know what it's about. 2021. It does star... Now, you're going to complain about how to pronounce this. Mark Wahlberg? Wahlberg? Wahlberg. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Blowfield. Look, it, it's about a guy. He, he's got these memories, you know, of, of, of things and people oh. and places that he knows... I he, have those. But he, he oh. knows he is never he himself has never experienced, yeah? Oh, like somebody else's memories. Yeah, uh, and either through this or because of this, he joins forces with. Uh, here, don't laugh, but a group of reborn warriors. Okay, uh, and, and they're fighting against a madman to uh, who's trying to stop life as we know it, i.e., reincarnation. So, don't know what you feel about the the ideas behind that. You're probably not going to like them, but are you going to enjoy the movie? I don't know. What's your choice going to be? Do you know what, Paul? Do you know what? What I love, what I really love about that movie is it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's about 14 quid cheaper than watching James Bond. 
<laughs> is that, well, is that true? <laughs> it is. Woo! It is completely free. Okay. <laughs> We're saving. We're saving £40, Paul. Aside to listeners, aside to listeners, it became a choice because the movie I suggested before it could only be bought and not rented at a pricey sum of £9.99. But I'm glad, therefore, you took the second choice. Uh, and the, in the bargains bin. Infinite is, it's a brand new movie, adventure, action, sci-fi, 2021. Let's do that for episode 11 of series two of Drive-By Cinema. Richard, is there anything that needs to be said before we hop off? No, nothing. Well, if you're going to edit this, remember you've got to put the music in a different place because we've got a cold open. Absolutely. So it's bye from Bond, oh. it's bye from Richard, and as I hop down this abseil line, it's bye from me. Zoop. That was abseil sound. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>